Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome, Formula One consumers, to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Joining you, as always, myself, Mark Hamilton, your co-host, or your co-host, my co-host, <laughs> Mark Daly, and really, I would say the official captain of this podcast, because he's been he's been uh, steering the ship now for, oh my gosh, going on almost six years. As you're listening to it, it is Friday, September 31st or October 1st. I don't even know where is the year going. We're a week away from the Turkish Grand Prix. The NBA preseason is locked and loaded. The NHL season's getting ready to start going. The NFL season is going. We're inching closer to Major League Baseball playoffs. If you live in North America, it is an absolute buffet of professional sports. We've got college basketball, college football. All four of the big four are up and running. In Europe, we've got the Premier League. Everything is rocking and rolling. There's more than enough sports to go around. I'm super excited. And as the NBA season is beginning, I have an announcement. I will be tapping out of the show, rejoining next June after the Toronto Raptors have won their second championship. So it'll just be uh, Mr. Daly for the next seven or eight months. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Homer Simpson. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it is a great time of year. And I I was just uh, I I guess I was whining a little bit before the show started just to how busy and how crazy this week has been for me so far. And I was looking. Well, Homer, hang on there, buddy. But uh, that, that was unintentional. Take that soundboard away from you. <laughs> I'll take that away. But you know, I was you know today was like a completely busy day. I was coming home. I was looking forward to watching the football game. I had no idea who was on tap tonight. I come home expecting a good one, and it's the Cincinnati Bengals and the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I was just like, that was totally not what I was expecting. Frustrating game to watch. Kind of lots of flags, lots of penalties, and well, let's just say that um, you know if you're the three and one Cincinnati. Bengals, maybe that's a little bit of um, you know, false positive. <laughs> I, 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 I want to add something interesting on that. So I am a huge NBA fan, huge Major League Baseball fan. I follow the Japanese Baseball League, all these different sports, but I was never an NFL guy. And back in 2009, uh, Hard Knocks was following the Cincinnati Bengals. Mm -hmm. And I actually watched Hard Knocks that entire season as a guy who knew nothing about the NFL. Heck, I didn't even know the rules of the game, which is crazy. But I actually became a Cincinnati Bengals fan because of that season of Hard Knocks. I think they revisited the Bengals in 2013, but it's funny because... It's that interesting parallel to so many of the new Formula One fans that became indoctrinated into the sport because of Drive to Survive. For me, Hard Knocks did the same thing. That said, I haven't been a particularly loyal Bengals fan, and they haven't given me a lot of reasons to be loyal, but I see you're wearing an NFL jersey. For for the listeners at home, what jersey are you wearing? Well, th- this is my uh, Seattle Seahawks Warren Moon jersey, you know, if I sort of oh, I love stand it. up here. It's, it's, it's a bit of a throwback, but I was in a, an especially, you know, football mood, and, uh, you know, if I want to, I can go and dig out my, my Matt Hasselback jersey out of the closet. I can even go back to, uh, you know, dig out the Rick Meyer jersey, which... Uh, 
you know, Rick was the quarterback back in the 90s. And that's kind of like my my, my badge to say, you know, to some of like the newer Fairweather fans that don't even know what the kingdom was, you know, and shame on them. I'll just say, you know, I can prove this is like my receipt of fandom to the uh, Seattle Seahawks is my, my Rick Meyer jersey. Anyways, that's I, all. I want to add something there. quickly on that Warren Moon piece. <laughs> now that you've got us going down this this football rabbit hole and we're shedding listeners like crazy. But for those of you that don't know, and I would assume most listeners know who Warren Moon is, he ran off five straight CFL Grey Cup championships with the Edmonton franchise from like 78 to 82. Now, I can't say what they used to be called because for political reasons, um, and appropriately so, they've been renamed. They're now the Edmonton it's the Edmonton Elks, right? That's Is that right, what they're yeah. called now? Correct. The Edmonton yeah. Elks. He was an absolute force to be reckoned with at a time when the CFL was a very competitive football league. Oh, yeah. I mean, back in the day. You know, I mean, it's there's still a fair amount of guys that'll come up and play here and still get a shot in the NFL. But I mean, back in in decades gone by, that divide between the NFL and the CFL was was much much smaller. And Warren was one of those guys that just didn't really get a look at the NFL back in the day. Came up here, like you say, he was a rock star playing for Edmonton, and then he went down to play for the uh, the, the 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 then Houston Oilers, and then uh, eventually wound up uh, his career with uh, Seattle. So this is kind of a, a cool one that uh, I'll wear every once. Uh, Every once in a while, I love it. Yeah, I love so, it. we should we should probably talk a little bit about Formula One now that we're seventeen we? minutes into the show. <laughs> well, we can, you know, it, it's one of these uh, funny weeks, you know, where, where we don't have a race, and I, I think I say it every week now that we don't have a back to back race or a triple header or a quadruple header. You just become so used to it, and now we find ourselves with an empty weekend in front of us. Uh, I almost feel like there's a, a little bit of a almost like a relaxed attitude that we have coming into the show, but like. Like you so rightly said off the top of the show, you got football, you got baseball, you got hockey, you got basketball, you know, you got uh, you know elite soccer leagues around the world all going on at the same time. So, I mean, it really is, you know, a sports fan's dream at this time of year. So, I mean, until we get picked up by ESPN, we're running Sports Center. then, you know, we'll have to put that to one side. We will talk about Formula One and rightly so. And what I really wanted to start with the show or you wanted to, because we'd actually put this on the agenda, was it was it last? week or the week before, but this was this global survey that was run by the Motorsport Network and and Formula One, and it gave fans an opportunity to really weigh in and, and really make their voices uh, known when, uh, when it comes to uh, you know the state of Formula One. And the results uh, were released, and it was interesting because you know you had uh, guys like Otmar Safnauer, the team principal at Aston Martin, you had Ross Braun, the, the managing director of uh, motorsport at Formula One, just talking about how important it is to listen to the fans and it's almost, uh, I think it's refreshing, but it, it, it's it's one thing to listen to them. It's I think it's another thing to really take, um, you know, the fans' opinions and wishes on board and and do something with it. But I think there's uh, some some really good uh, takeaways from this uh, this survey. So why don't you pick it up from here, Mark? I was I was actually excited to do the survey because I was very curious about how Liberty was going to approach the survey. I think. Sometimes when you have a big company surveying their consumer base, the questions can be a little bit manipulative in the sense that the company may have a desired outcome that they want to be able to take to their shareholders and say, hey, this is what our fans are, are telling us and this is what our consumers are telling us. But ultimately, it may not necessarily be 
fully transparent in the sense that fans didn't necessarily have the opportunity to really kind of lean into their their beliefs and their thoughts. I I thought the survey was good. I thought it was well-structured. They asked a lot of meaningful questions, but it was also a little bit dated in in a couple of senses. And the point I want to make here is there was a section within the survey where it specifically asked you how you consumed F1 content. And I thought this was really cool because, and I'm going to back this up a little bit and be totally humble with everybody. The way I consume sports now in 2021 is principally, to be totally honest, through social media Mm -hmm. and through podcasts. For every hour of NBA basketball I watch, and I think our listeners are probably aware that I'm a huge NBA fan, but for every hour of NBA basketball that I watch, I probably consume five hours of NBA podcast. That's how I process. That's how I listen. It's super convenient. I can listen in the car. I can listen on the bike. I can mm-hmm. listen when I'm running or when I'm climbing, all those kind of things. When I was looking at the survey, like I said, there was a section about how you consume content. And there was, I watch it on broadcast television or pay TV. I read about it in the newspaper or I read about it in a magazine, but there was a couple of glaring absences that completely shocked me. They didn't give listeners the ability to speak to podcasting as a form of consuming F1 Mm. content, and nor did they lead into the entire ecosystem of vloggers that are producing F1 content and dumping it onto YouTube. And there are some hugely, hugely popular channels, least of which is is Chainbear. So I thought that was really interesting because it was structured almost in a way that I would have expected it to have been structured under Bernie and the previous regime, less the really digitally focused Liberty regime. So I thought that was interesting. I do encourage everybody to go out and seek this survey. It was done in collaboration with Liberty, F1, Nielsen, and the Motorsport Network. It's still online now. You can find it at f1globalfansurvey.motorsport.com. It's worth filling out. There's a lot of thoughts on there about, hey, if you were going to attend a race, which races would appeal to you most? What is your desire? Ticket price range. So there's some good stuff there. And I appreciate that they're doing this. I just thought it was a little bit dated in the sense that they weren't really recognizing the way that I think a lot of people are consuming Formula One, because like it is for me in the NBA, I consume most of my Formula One and I watch the races because it's an accessible sport in the fact that really I only have to commit to a one, two hour race every two weeks. But I consume so much of the F1 content through social media and through podcasting and vlogging. And 15 years ago, none of that existed. So yeah, maybe I would have been reading the newspaper or subscribing to F1 magazine, but I probably wasn't consuming nearly as much F1 content as I am today. So I just thought that was interesting that they didn't angle in or even offer those up as options in the survey. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost... um it almost makes you wonder if it's an intentional oversight because at this point in time, I mean, it's, it's 2021. This is like, you know, podcasting has been around since what, 2005, 2006 and it's earliest, you know, iterations. And I mean, YouTube has been a thing for a good number of years as well. So like you say, I mean, there's, there's some massive vloggers out there. So it seems interesting that um, it's almost sort of, you'd want to say channeled towards the more official 
forms of uh, of broadcast and you know, the way that they disseminate yeah, the things. Yeah, I like right? the way you put that. Yeah, I like the way yeah. you put that. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I have uh, filled it off uh, or filled it out in the past. I haven't done it, but uh, you know, this time around. But you've uh, you've really piqued my interest. I think that after we get the show done this weekend, I'll, I'll take a look at that. Uh, I want to see some of the interesting uh, choices that that, uh, that that come up. So I've got to be uh, honest uh, when you know you, you mentioned uh, one of the questions was. You know, if you were to to attend a race, what would be your choice? Uh, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, is it uh, the choice of a, a destination, or is it choice of passion, drive, and patience? The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I guess the criteria for attending a race. Yeah, so for me, it has to be, personally, it has to be glitzy, expensive. I need to be able to land my private jet within a five-minute <laughs> five drive of the track. I need to be able to jet away as soon as my my champagne celebration is done with the drivers after the race. Awesome. But <laughs> it, it, certainly, it certainly leaned in as well to the sense that Formula One is a prestigious premium event that has a very... I don't want to say exotic because I don't like that word, but it has a luxurious perception and a kind of a luxurious feel. But certainly there was a sense that they were very curious, or at least the team that was putting the survey together was very curious about the perception of certain events on the calendar. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I thought was interesting too is they were asking questions about a lot of races that aren't permanent fixtures on the calendar. So they were asking questions about Imola, they were asking about Portugal, they were asking about Turkey. And I thought that was interesting because I wonder how many customers may respond really favorably to some of these non-permanent events which might go into the decision making of the sport moving forward which is hey mm. covid covid for all the terrible things it's done to society and sports and the bottom line of formula one and the race organizers it's given them the opportunity to trial races that we may never have seen before and i think it's important to not take for granted what we've seen is Formula One and Liberty have been forced to be flexible. At no other time in history have we been adding races to the calendar mid-season. Like, that's absurd. In the past, it takes years to build up and get a, a race onto the calendar. Because of COVID and the necessity of Formula One to cash in on the TV money, they've been adding events on the fly, which is remarkable. But it's also given us the opportunity, it's given Liberty the opportunity to, to trial some tracks and some, trial some countries that we may never have seen. We may never have gone back to Turkey. We may never have seen Portugal. We never have, may, never have gone back to Imola or Mugello or some of these other places. We probably wouldn't have seen the outer ring at Bahrain. We may not have gone to Qatar. 
So I think that's been a, an interesting byproduct of the COVID situation. You know, it really is interesting to think that uh, one of these days we're going to come out of uh, this COVID uh, you know, situation and we will resume life in a post-pandemic world. And it almost seems weird to think one of these days we're going to have, say, a 25 race calendar or a 23 race calendar, whatever it is. And race one and race 23 or 25 or whatever it is, it's going to be all set in stone, plus all the races in between. And we're, we're not going to be changing it up on the fly. And it, it'll be... It'll be weird, I think, to get used to that again, as weird as it's been over the past uh, almost, God, almost two years now to get used to the, the, this fluid uh, you know, cal- calendar that we have each and every year of you know, races dropping off and coming back on and all the adjustments that uh, that they've made. But it will it will be uh, interesting. I mean, for, for myself, I mean, there, there's a couple ones that are obvious, uh, obviously a little bit too expensive to, um, you know, to, to consider going to. I mean, Monaco is one. I mean, there's just, uh, you know, it, it's just, uh, well, I mean, it's as far as I can tell, right? Uh, but I, I mean, for me, I would... At this point, I mean, I haven't been to all the races on the calendar, you know, any calendar, you know, a, a current one or a historic one. Like to pick uh, places that I haven't gone or places that I can combine with like a, a larger visit. Um, you know, I'd love, you know, I've been to Japan uh, before, but I never went there to watch, uh, you know, a race at either Fuji or Suzuka. I mean, Japan is such a cool, fascinating, interesting country as it is. And I, I just couldn't think of anything cooler than to have, you know, make the, the, the time and the effort to go to Japan and, you know, work a Formula One weekend into your trip. I think it'd be the coolest thing. And, you know, I'd love to go to, uh, you know, go to Australia as well. My, my, my wife has family in Melbourne who, uh, you know, are, are, I don't know if they're just really nice or they really are just begging us to come. And, you know, they just, uh, you know, they're, they're just being polite and, you know, they're, they're just saying the right thing. But one of these days we will take them up on their offer and whether it's sincere or not, and then they have to put up with us, then that's, that's their issue. But uh, that, that's another one. I mean, I'd love to go to all of them one of these days, but, you know, <laughs> usually the one thing that prevents me as everybody else is the, the, the bottom line and you know when I open up my wallet uh, it seems to be rather bereft of funds it's just you know the moths fly out and uh, <laughs> but I don't yeah. I don't know who I was mentioning this to the other day but somebody was asking me on Twitter about which race they should go to and the reason why what you're saying resonates so much with me and you've experienced this because you've been to multiple Grand Prix is that Every single Grand Prix is completely unique, yep. completely distinct, and has a completely, completely special atmosphere. No two Grand Prix are alike. And yep. once you've been to one, you, you you soak it in and you love it. And then you go to another and it's great, but it's different. And then like, well, I want to see what a Grand Prix would be like in Japan. Because to your point, that's a country that is absolutely obsessed with motor vehicles and motorsports. And I would love to see how, how that translates into an atmosphere at a an event like a Grand Prix. So totally feel you. But it's very different than an arena sport where, you know what, I get it. The crowd might be different from Philly to Baltimore or Philly to DC yep. or Charlotte to Atlanta, but it's completely different. World's different in the world of Formula One. It was interesting. We were in Japan in 2007 and it was it was pretty cool because everywhere we went, and I'm pretty sure, I can't remember now if it was uh, Hugo Boss or Tag Heuer, but everywhere you went, especially in Tokyo, there were Lewis Hamilton billboards and posters 
posters everywhere. It was it was really really uh, cool to 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 see. And th- this is Lewis before he was like the massive Formula One star that he was or is now. I mean, he was uh, obviously pretty uh, popular in Japan, at least from a marketing point of view, uh, even as far back Big as uh, two thousand seven. Yeah, I've got another Japan story, but it's completely irrelevant, so I'll just keep that in the back pocket and save it for another time. So let's we'll take save a- that for our Patreon account. Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll set up one of those one of these days, and we can just ramble on about uh, the the stuff that we really want to talk about, but it's completely <laughs> irrelevant to <laughs> this show. F1. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we still got plenty of things uh, to talk about, so don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. You are listening to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Mr. Mark Daly and Mr. Mark Hamilton. So we were just talking about the Formula One Global Fan Survey. So this is interesting too. So uh, we were talking just about the you know the fluid and ever changing nature of the Formula One calendar. So earlier today, and it was actually kind of cool because uh, the the news of this was actually you know shared with me with my good friend Simon, who is uh, living in Qatar. He's um, part of the uh, World Cup organizing committee and is uh, there living for a couple of years. And so he's kind of been following this story and kind of been feeding us a little bit of information over the previous weeks and months. But uh, when I woke up this morning, and I believe they're 12 hours ahead, so Simon had informed me, yep, official, it's going to be this year, then uh, no race next year in 22, uh, because uh, the the World Cup will be going on, and they will be focusing on uh, hosting that uh, tournament. And then, and this was, I think, the the, the big eye-opener, the big surprise, a 10-year contract to hold a, a, a Formula One race in Qatar until 2032. Now, I guess I was initially quite surprised that the official confirmation took as long as it did because I mean this this story's been out there for weeks and months. It was it was a, a question of not if but when this would get announced. And when I saw that they'd announced like a 10 year deal, I'm like, oh yeah, well that totally makes sense why it, <laughs> it's taken so long to announce. But so it's going to be at the the, the purpose built at Losail track. And they're going to be um, changing to some other track that's purpose built in the future. And I was thinking about, oh, gosh, you know, we already have races in Bahrain. We already have Abu Dhabi. You know, we we have so many races in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia coming online as well. And that was quickly pushed out of my mind. I was just like, you know, I don't really care where we race right now. You know, as long as there's races and if there's uh, venues that are committing long, long term to it, I'm I'm cool with that, you know. Be it uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, or uh, Qatar, or anywhere in between, I think it's awesome. But I, I must admit, I was surprised at the ten-year term for this race. Yeah, I completely agree. I think to your point, F one is terrible with keeping secrets. It's <laughs> absolutely a sieve when it comes to driver news and track news and signings and sponsorships. So I wasn't surprised, and I think we were all expecting this. I think the only the only real question throughout this was: Were we going to return to Sahir in Bahrain, or were we going to go to Lasail in Qatar? Um, ultimately, we landed in Qatar, and I think it's probably worth giving a little bit of background on this the region. So. The United Arab Emirates, which is where Abu Dhabi is based, and Qatar are both connected to uh, the Arabian Peninsula. They both share land borders with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, Bahrain is probably 80 to 100 kilometers north of Qatar, and it's connected to the Saudi mainland via a causeway. Bahrain has a really great 
formula or FIA grade one track um, called Sahir, which we've talked about many times. Uh, Qatar has a track called Lusail, as you mentioned a couple minutes ago. And obviously the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi have Yas Marina. And colloquial, regionally, they're often referred to as the three pearls. And pearl trade has been hmm. a big, big part of the historical industry in that region. Now, Lusail is a little bit different in that Sahir and Yas were built from the ground up to accommodate Formula One. So we're talking about bigger grandstand capacity. We're talking about bigger garages. We're talking about much, much, much grander media accommodations. We're talking about hotels and all sorts of other kind of tourism hubs in the immediate area. In a way, Lusail was kind of built on the cheap. It was built principally to accommodate MotoGP. It opened mm-hmm. in 2004. It sits about... Um, I guess 22 miles and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to do the metric conversions on the fly, but it sits about 22 miles or about 36 kilometers, 38 kilometers north of downtown Doha, which is the biggest city in Qatar. Yeah. Interestingly, it hasn't actually been resurfaced since it opened in 2004. So the surface that's laid down now is the original surface. And that's interesting to note because it's incredibly worn and the aggregate is heavily exposed. So it's going to have a couple of interesting effects on the racing during the Grand Prix. One is that it's going to be very, very, very sticky. So cars are going to have a tremendous amount of grip on this track, but it also means it is going to eat through tires and the formula one teams have zero experience here and most of the younger drivers have little to no experience here as well so it's going to be an interesting experience for everyone capacity wise it's tiny it sits between eight and ten thousand people in a single grandstand that runs immediately parallel to the grid Um, in terms of entertainment and hospitality there's very little built out around the track and i think that's why to your point now that qatar is locked in with a 10-year agreement moving forward so this year 2022 is going to be a one-off at lucille but generally it's been speculated and reported that this will not be the permanent long-term home of formula one in the state of qatar but rather there will be a permanent dedicated F1 track constructed, or more likely, they're going to do something similar to what's happening in Saudi Arabia and Jeddah right now, which is a hybrid street permanent track will be built on the Cornish in downtown mm-hmm. Doha that will snake between the skyscrapers and give a really beautiful vista and, and view from a, a TV broadcast perspective. So I, I'm interested in seeing this, this track, a couple of other interesting points as well that simulators suggest that the average qualifying speed at Lusail for an F1 car is going to be about 237 kilometers an hour. During a race, the average speed is going to be about 220 kilometers an hour. They think that in qualifying, to put this into perspective, that'll translate into a one minute, 22 second lap. Um, during the race, that's probably closer to a minute 28. Now, interestingly, from at least a motorcycle MotoGP perspective, and I'm going to shove in a little bit of MotoGP corner here real quick. The fastest speed ever recorded on a MotoGP bike was at this track this year by Johan Zarco. He recorded a 362 kilometer an hour top speed. So for our American friends, that would be, I'm doing the math real quick. I don't know. What's that divided by 1.6? 215 miles an hour or something like that? 215 miles an hour to our American listeners. So that that principal straight is incredibly fast. So hopefully that provides a little bit of background. When it was opened originally, it was a daytime-based track. They added lighting in 2007. And what's not decided currently is whether this will be a day race 
a dusk night, so a race that would start in the daylight and graduate into the night, or whether it would be a night race. But even if it's a night race at this time of year, it'll probably still be in the mid to high 20s with some relative humidity um, come race time. So it'll be interesting to see. And like you said, though, it's it's constructed principally for motorcycle racing. It's going to be tight confines for the media. It's going to be very, very tight for the teams because it simply wasn't built to accommodate Formula One. Doesn't It does have a grade one license. So from a safety perspective, the FIA is cool to proceed. But as a one-off, it'll be interesting. Just don't expect to see Formula One there beyond this year. Yeah, I just uh, was kind of thinking too, when you're saying that it's going to be a really, really abrasive uh, surface, I wonder what that's going to mean for Pirelli. Are they going to bring their hardest compound uh, tires to this one? So it'll be, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, like you say, nobody really has any data on this, uh, any anything really tangible or usable. I mean, I'm sure they've got enough, uh, you know, simulator data, but that doesn't necessarily translate into what it's going to be in real life. So it's going to be pretty cool to see how this one uh, shapes up. But yeah, I think it's going to be a good temporary home for Formula One. And uh, like I said, my buddy Simon, he lives in Doha and it's, uh, you know, the pictures that he sends all the time of the, the, the city and the surroundings, it looks pretty spectacular. So whether they, they build something closer to the city or they have, a, like you say, a hybrid street uh, permanent uh, track in the in, you know downtown or somewhere close to downtown remains to be seen. But uh, certainly looks like a, you know, a, a very nice place to uh, host a, a Formula One Grand Prix. Okay. I'll add one thing yep. real. And I promise I say this every time I'm going to be really quick and I never add it. <laughs> one other important note here that I think is valuable to understand that whether whether the general consensus is that, hey, we want to go to Qatar as a Formula One community or we would rather go to a traditional track, understand that Liberty is still in a very, very... I would say challenging position financially. The sport took an absolute bath last year because yeah. the calendar was truncated. Uh, they weren't cashing in on a lot of the race hosting fees. So outside of some of these Middle Eastern races or races in the Gulf, um, most of the tracks weren't paying race hosting fees last year because they couldn't sell tickets. So those were freebies. So Formula One was absorbing the cost of going to these places. They weren't getting sanctioning fees. They were only doing it because they were desperate to get the product onto TV. So obviously last year, revenues were down by 50 to 60%. OI was almost completely wiped out. And I think even now, a lot of the race organizers in some of the traditional countries and some of the traditional tracks are close to bleeding out. And by that, I mean, for those that were able to host an event this year, there was costs incurred last year, even though they didn't host an event, they may not have been able to sell their, their facilities out at full capacity, but they were paying full hosting fees. This ultimately is a situation that Liberty's in because ultimately they need the revenue associated with these events. Sure. Yeah. Race organizers like Qatar and Bahrain and and Yas come in and they offer, in many cases, spectacular venues and they offer uh, a race sanctioning fee that the sport desperately needs because I can promise you, based on some of the things that you and I understand is happening, especially in Western Europe, is that some of those race organizers are in really, really problematic positions um, and they may not be around in two or three years to continue hosting events at some of these more traditional venues. So COVID has had a significant impact and it's one of those things that may not fully play out for another year or year or two or three years. So just just be aware that a lot of what Formula One's doing right now is very much 
short-term economically driven just to keep the sport moving and to keep the momentum going. And like you said, 22 events this year, I think we should all be happy with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was thrilled last year that we were even going to get a season. I was uh, even more thrilled that uh, they had 17 races scheduled for 2020. I was even more thrilled that we actually got all those 20 races up and going. And coming into this year, when I saw the calendar and... You know, coming into 2021, I, I must admit, you know, perhaps I was being a little bit naive. I thought maybe we were kind of coming out of this pandemic thing. I was kind of hoping that uh, we were going to get a full season and uh, we were going to get all 23, 24 races or whatever it was. And um, obviously, you know, I kind of had it in the back of my mind that some things might change. I think it's changed a little bit more, excuse me, than I was expecting. But, um, you know, if we get 22 races out of it, you know, five more than last year, I'll be uh, I'll, I'll be so happy. Can we talk about engines? I'm really excited to talk about engines. Or should we take a break first? Well, why don't we take a little bit of a, a quick break? We'll break ahead of schedule because then we can dive into this one and we can talk about it to our heart's content. So we'll do so in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We've talked fan surveys. We've talked new races. Now we are going to talk new engines. So, Mark, it sounds like there's going to be some news coming ahead of the Turkish Grand Prix next week regarding the new engine format that's going to probably debut in 2026. I'm I'm super excited about this. And this is where I get a little bit nerdy. And I've admitted this off air before that sometimes... The logistics and the economics, the technical side of Formula One interest me far more than what's happened on the track. (laughs) That's really been necessary over the course of the last six or seven years because there hasn't been a whole lot of competition on the track. But as we all know, Formula One is embarking on what's really seen as a staggered two-pronged attempt to introduce more cost certainty, simplicity, and competitiveness into the sport. Yeah. Principally next year, we're going to see a new, uh, let's say a new regulation or a new formula around the physical construct of the car itself. So we're talking about the aerodynamics, we're talking about suspension, we're talking about the chassis. Now, the engine change, the transition to a new engine formula is going to happen a couple of years later. So next year, we're going to see new cars and potentially in 2025 or 2026, we're going to see a new engine formula. So what's kind of been buzzing on the sidelines all season has been, hey, what does that new engine formula look like? We now know what the new cars are going to look like. Now, we don't know how the teams are going to interpret the formulas as they relate to the chassis and the aero. We're going to have to wait till February next year to get a sense of what the teams ultimately interpret those formulas to be. But I think what we're beginning to understand and what we're beginning to get a clearer picture of is what the new engine formula is going to look like. Now, prior to 2016, or sorry, prior to 2014, the sport was running a fairly simplified V8 formula. So it was a pretty basic V8 formula. They'd experimented 
with a little bit with the Kerr system, so kinetic yeah. energy recovery system, so pulling some power out of uh, the braking uh, process. They weren't sticking it in a battery necessarily. They were sticking it into a flywheel. And then, of course, in 2014, they went totally bananas with this 1.6 liter V6 turbo with a double hybrid system. So you've got the MGU-H, which is pulling energy out of the turbo system, and you've got the MGU-K, which is pulling power out of the braking system. Now, this system is incredibly complex, and it's been the real bane of existence for the teams that are in Formula One, and it's also proved as a barrier of entry to teams that have been interested in joining Formula One. So Ultimately, in 2014, Mercedes got the formula right, right from the jump, and everybody else was playing catch-up. When Honda re-entered Formula One in 2015, they came in as an engine supplier for McLaren. They were most troubled by the MGU-H component. That's mm -hmm. where their reliability issues were coming. That's where their power deficit was coming. That's where they were struggling to produce a power unit that delivered on the expectations of the McLaren team. Yep. Ultimately, they got it together, and they created a power unit, a package that was pretty effective. Now, one of the things that F1 wants to do is reco reduce costs. One of the ways that you can reduce costs is reduce complexity. So it's been speculated for months and even years that a number of teams within the sports, they want to ditch that MGUH. And it's also been speculated as far back as 2019 that some groups, including Porsche, have actually built and te tech or test benched um, their own Formula One engine. And hmm. Porsche ultimately was speculated as far back as 2019 to be disinterested in Formula One because of the MGUH and the fact that the sport wasn't willing to move off of it. What we're beginning to understand now more and more and more is that Formula One as a whole, including the teams, are willing to walk away from the MGUH as part of the new engine formula if it means bringing on a couple of new teams. Not necessarily new teams, but new engine suppliers. And those two engine suppliers both fall under the Volkswagen Auto Group banner in Audi and Porsche. So we don't know. We know that they've been at the table. They've been a part of these conversations, but it's possible we could know much more about what that engine formula is going to look like prior to the race weekend at Turkey. And if we do learn, or if it's ultimately announced that the MGUH will not be a part of that engine formula, we are going to be in a position where we could possibly see one or two new engine suppliers enter the sport. And just to remind everybody, because I get this question constantly, and it's a good question. The MGUH is an incredibly sophisticated component that's bolted in between the turbine and the compressor on the turbo. So the turbo works by taking exhaust gases that are coming out of the engine. They spin a turbine, which then pushes air into a compressor that compresses coal there that it then pumps into the power unit. The MGUH is a sophisticated component that sits between the two of those and captures wasted energy. And it takes that wasted energy from the exhaust gases and it can pump it back into the battery or it can drive it directly into the compressor to keep the compressor uh, spinning when the engine's at idle or when the driver isn't on the throttle. So incredibly cool, incredibly complex, incredibly expensive. Expensive. The other thing that finally we're probably going to learn before Turkey is that Formula One, the FIA, are going to mandate significantly more standardized parts in the engine. So what that means is that the FIA is going to come along and say, hey, this component has to be built to these exact specifications, mm -hmm. no deviation, there's no creative license here, 
Or alternatively, they will go to a contractor and say, hey, Mr. Contractor, you are going to buy this. You're going to build this part. And then they'll go to the teams and say, this part has to be bought from this supplier and you cannot modify it. So we're probably going to learn a lot. And ultimately where this is really exciting is the premise that maybe Porsche, maybe Audi, maybe both enter the sport as engine suppliers. But to me, I think what's really exciting about this is less them entering as an engine supplier, but if Formula One now has a cost cap of $130 million a year, and maybe the cost of entering the sport and building a factory and hiring thousands of engineers isn't as prohibitive as it has been in the past, why not enter the sport as a manufacturer? Like if you're going to go out of your way to develop the most complex part of a car, why not just start your own team? So I don't know, would love to know your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, uh, those are some pretty uh, enticing and very exciting things that you're talking about. Uh, I, you know, and I, I think this goes back to a couple of weeks ago when uh, this uh, story about the teams uh, being, you know, cool with dumping the MGU, uh, sorry, MGUH came out um, because... I think it was Total Wolf that was uh, the the uh, almost the the front man saying that you know if it means that we can you know you know di- if we lose this part and it's going to attract you know other names into uh, Formula One like like an Audi like a Porsche then you know they're they're willing to make that sacrifice and I thought okay well this isn't just anybody this is Total Wolf this is like one of the names uh, you know the big name in in Formula One. So that really made me sit up and listen. And I think it is incredibly you know, exciting that we're even having this discussion. But you've really raised a fascinating point there. And, you know, it, it's a really good one that if you're going to take all that time and money to develop something as complex as a modern Formula One power unit, why not just build the whole car? And then I guess that that's, that, that pie is also a little bit sweetened by the fact that you're saying that they're considering about these standardized parts that are either built and manufactured by the teams to the the specifications laid out by the by the by the regulator or like you say there's some third party you know John Doe widgets incorporated or Acme or whoever you know manufactures these things and just basically becomes a bolt-on component uh, that uh, that all the teams have to put into their engine so I mean which is not necessarily a bad thing because in order to um, you know be that supplier well number one they have to deliver a high quality part for the cheap as possible price so that's always a bit of a you know an interesting uh you know <laughs> you know situation but i i don't necessarily think that's a, a bad thing i think that in general they're they're making the engines potentially simpler they're taking away additional costs by the you know introducing standardized parts and if you have uh, somebody like audi or porsche wanting to come into the sport in either uh, as a engine manufacturer, perhaps as an you know an entire works team, I think that's uh, you know that that's fantastic. But you know it is kind of a, I, I guess it's a, a bit of a you know it's not a difficult situation for for Volkswagen because there's obviously going to be no emissions controls on it. So there's that uh, that they don't have to worry about. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. that was that was well placed. Yep. That quote, by the way, from Toto, I just pulled it up in the background. Here is yep. the MGUH. Oh boy, that is a mouthful. It is, the isn't MGUH it? MGUH will be dropped if we can find alignment. of many other points. I think it's a compromise that I can't speak for anyone else, but at Mercedes, we are prepared to enter in order to facilitate the entry of the Volkswagen group. And like I said, from the top, Audi and Porsche are both members of that consortium. Yeah. And that's that, that quote really, 
you know, is is an attention grabber for so many reasons. I mean, the fact that Mercedes is willing to, you know, budge on that specifically to help, uh, you know, facilitate the entry of the, the Volkswagen Group in whatever form it is, whatever brand that they would enter into Formula One. I think that is just, uh, I, I think that is earth shattering news in Formula One. I think it's a big, big, big story. Well, your point there is a valid one in the sense that no team has benefited more from the current engine formula than Mercedes. Since this engine formula has been introduced, they've won every yep. driver's title and they've won every constructor's title. So it's it's a really positive position to be in that that team who has dominated and benefited the most financially and in terms of stacking chips is willing to, to migrate away from that formula, really into the unknown, because they don't know necessarily that they can build a power unit as successful as the current one without that component. And the MGUH for them has been an absolute godsend in terms of performance and reliability and really the the difference maker when it came to performance on the track. You know, it is fa- uh, fascinating to think, you know, you, you get to, you know, I just would have loved to sit in that conversation, you know, Toto sitting there saying, okay, well, guys, what happens? What would our performance be like if we were to to ditch this part? You know, is, is this doable? Is this something that we even want to consider? Or is this something that we even want to promote? So I, I would have been really, I think it would have been really interesting and insightful to have sat in some of these internal conversations, you know, in Mercedes, because he just didn't come out and say that out of nowhere. I mean, They've obviously, at least to me, you know, and, and the way that I'm thinking, which is not necessarily, um, you know, the, the gold standard. But anyways, uh, it is, uh, you know, they, they must have discussed it, the, the the terms or the way that it would impact performance of their own power units and their cars and everything. And I mean, it's 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 a huge concession to make. Or, I mean, they, they know as well as anyone else, the troubles and the time and the cost that it's taken to develop this component. And maybe that they, they just realize you know, maybe it's just better to walk away from it. So it, it, I would have loved to have been a, a fly on the wall in that conversation. Absolutely. I would love a transcript for that one. So just <laughs> to summarize, what we do know or what we believe we know is that the V6 configuration is going to carry over. It's going to be a low displacement engine, still likely a 1.6 liter engine. We know that the turbocharger will carry over. We know that the MGUK will carry over. The MGUK is the system that captures wasted energy from the braking process and stores that in the battery. We know that will be carried over. And we also know that the future engine spec will likely run purely on synthetic fuels. And there will be a greater dependency on electrification, which is really remarkable when you can consider the fact that they're going to drop the MGUH. And then the final decision in all of this will be that the current formula expires at the end of 2024. So we're supposed to be rocking the new configuration for 2025. It's possible that will be stretched an additional year. So the teams will have an additional year to develop the new engine formula. So we might see it in 2026. And the final reminder is just remember that the engines that the teams close the season with are going to be frozen. And that will be the exact engine configuration they will run for 2022, 23, 24, and possibly 20. 
2025, the teams will not have the liberty to continue to innovate performance gains with the current power unit beyond the end of the season, in some cases at all, because they've already used all of their tokens for this year. You know, it's uh, another point that I think uh, is really worth mentioning is that uh, in some of the reports that are out there is that both Audi and Porsche will enter Formula One in, in 2026. And there's been some speculation that there might, one of them might uh, hook up with the, with Red Bull, which seems kind of counterintuitive considering Red Bull has already made this massive commitment to, to take over that Honda IP and start their own powertrain uh, div- the division. It just seems that, well, I mean, nothing is impossible, of course. I mean, it, it could certainly happen, but I mean, they've already sunk significant time and money and effort into taking over that program. And it, it just seems to me a little bit, like I say, counterintuitive that this would be sort of an interim kind of filler between, you know, developing their own engines and running their own engine program to link up with Audi or Porsche three, totally four, agree. five years down the road. It just doesn't, it just doesn't add up to me. Yeah, I totally agree. My other thought too, is that if Porsche or Audi were looking to partner with with Red Bull, maybe they should give Renault a quick call and just ask like, even when you're winning titles, how was that relationship? <laughs> it was terrible. So so just uh, just be careful if you're going to link up with with Red Bull. I know the Honda relationship's been been good, but uh, the Renault relationship was a absolute disaster. We talk about how bad the Honda McLaren relationship was. That Red Bull Renault relationship was incredibly contentious even when they were winning titles together. Yeah, you know, it's like breaking up with your partner, but you're still living in the same house, you know. It's, uh, it, it, just, uh, it just got really snarky and petty and, you know, the way that uh, they were all sniping back and forth at, at each other. Although it did make so, for some interesting footing uh, or footage in season two of Drive to Survive with uh, Christian Horner and uh, Surreela Bitabul, especially after that um, whole incident uh, when they snagged Danny Ricardo and pulled him uh, away from, from Red Bull and got him over to Renault there that was a, a, a bit of a, a a moment and I I actually felt quite sad for Surreal Abitabul in season three when you know Ricardo announced that he was going to uh, going to uh, McLaren but the one thing but this is a little obviously uh, off topic here but we're coming to the end of the engine discussion anyways is did Abitabul ever get the tattoo after uh, Ricardo got that podium at the Nürburgring last year has that no, been confirmed no, one way or another? Nobody knows. And my sense is that given the fact that he lost his job, Daniel Ricardo may have been less likely to press him on press him on the matter. So I don't know, but uh, I would be curious. Uh, I would be curious, but I just I don't think that as a professional courtesy, Daniel Ricardo was going to press him on that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, an agreement is an agreement. Uh, it, it's almost a little bit of being a you know a bad sport making an agreement and not uh, following through with it. Anyway, so why don't we take a, a quick time out? When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, some ideas that they have to maybe try and avoid the torrential washout that we saw spa a couple of weeks ago so don't go away we'll be back in just a moment hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line 
Okay, everybody, welcome back. And the next story on the on the ticker, on the docket, on the list, whatever you want to call it, is the potential that the start times for races might actually be brought forward earlier into the day to you know, avoid another scenario like we saw at the ridiculous slip and slide of the uh, Belgian Grand Prix a couple of uh, weeks ago. It was that, uh, what, couple, I mean, it started, then they sat in the pits for a long time. They did a couple laps behind the safety car. Then they they they, they black flare, red flagged the race. They went in and awarded half points. And it was just a, a debacle and just a igniting criticism and scorn and just a whole heap of angry sentiments from around the Formula One community and, uh, and rightfully so. But is this good enough to, you know, <laughs> to really you know, prevent something like this. I mean, weather can be a little bit unpredictable. I mean, we saw that last weekend in Saatchi. Absolutely. I think the main consideration while we're talking about this topic is TV money. Liberty doesn't get its TV money unless a Formula One Grand Prix is run. And I think that's why people like me were so angry at the outcome at Spa a few weeks ago in the sense that it was clear to everybody it wasn't going to be safe. It was never going to be safe to run a Grand Prix. And they paraded those cars out for two or three laps simply so they could get a race classification and close the book on the Grand Prix. And the reason, the reason I was frustrated at the time was because I knew it was a farce and I wasn't sure why the FIA would have gone along with that. But it was important to Liberty because unless you get a race classification, Liberty doesn't get paid from the TV networks for that event. Mm. If the event is canceled, they don't get that cash. So in this case, it was important for them to have a Grand Prix because they wanted, they needed to get paid. I think the other consideration with this story is, yeah, it's it's great. Liberty and the FIA should absolutely be flexible. And if they anticipate that there's going to be a downpour an hour into a race, you bring that event forward. The challenge, though, again, is the TV networks. The TV networks build their entire programming schedule around a certain time slot. We know here on the West Coast of Canada, the West Coast of North America, that most Grand Prix start at 5 a.m., Now, it used to be 6 a.m. back in the day, Mm -hmm. but now it's 5 a.m., but we know that, our DVRs know that, our families know that, the TV networks know that. It's very, very, very challenging for TV networks to on the fly adjust their entire programming block to accommodate the fact that a Formula One Grand Prix is going to start an hour early. And they typically wouldn't know that until a couple of hours before the lights were going to go green anyways. And then if you are going to move a race forward, how do you convey or communicate that message to all the people that are anticipating tuning in at a specific time? Now, in the world of streaming, it gets a little bit easier because for people like us that have the F1 TV Pro app, they can just push a notification to us like hey the event's going to be on at this time it's starting early blah 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 a whole bunch of notifications good worst case we miss it with the f1 tv pro app we can just scroll back or restart the race at our pleasure but for those that are tuning in live on network tv that's a really problematic experience and i don't think most of the tv networks are necessarily going to be open
open. They're cool to dragging it out. They're not cool about bringing it forward. So it puts Liberty and it puts the FIA and it puts the networks in something of a tight spot. But maybe also Liberty is just in a position where, hey, look, five years, 10 years from now, how much dependence are we going to have on the TV networks? Because we're going to be driving all of those eyeballs to the F1 TV app, which we control anyways. Yeah, you know, I might not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I was uh, this is a thought that occurred to me just now as you were saying that, uh, you know, that they didn't get their TV money from the from the networks if they didn't actually run a race in Spa there a couple of weeks ago. And I couldn't help but thinking that if the world had been a completely different place over the past 18 months, if COVID hadn't had happened, if it was just life as normal, and they didn't hemorrhage all that cash they did in 2020 and 2021, do they even go out and do that farce of a race in Spa a couple of weeks ago? And I, I, I don't think that they would have. I think that they might have just said, said the event is canceled. It's a safety thing. We can't do it. But I think that they need to, I think they felt obligated. We've got to go out and do this, even if it's a complete sham, it's a complete farce because we need to get paid. I never, ever, ever thought about that as a, as a concept. But now that you say it, it makes total sense. Yeah. If this was 2019, does the FIA parade those cars out there for two laps to get a classification? Probably not, but Liberty needed that ticket revenue to feed the race sanctioning organizer to feed them, and they needed the money from Sky Sports and all of their other global TV partners. But that's a really, really great point. Well, I think also too that you know there was a lot of comments after the race. You know, uh, Lewis uh, was one of them saying you got to find a way to make it right with the fans. So I think maybe within the you know within the you know the the inner circle within the paddock, maybe they kind of uh, thought that, and uh, hopefully they do do the right thing for you know ticket discounts or whatever for the for the people that went there and were treated to what was actually a pretty intense and pretty you know traumatic weekend considering all the all the you know the drama and accidents that we saw on the the, the track and then you know just the the whole debacle on race day and that uh, it's uh, yeah so who knows it's it's just a thought just something I thought I'd throw out there but it is interesting, and certainly, I think that uh, you know if they do have these uh, flexible times, I don't have a, a problem with it. But I could see if you are one of these uh, fans that is still watching on cable rather than say F1 TV, or say perhaps uh, you know Netflix does get say the streaming rights, which is uh, something that had uh, been talked about uh, recently. That that's not going to be so much of an issue. But if you are watching on uh, on cable and the race has been moved up uh, an hour and you turn it on, it's already lap. 40 and Lewis Hamilton's leading by 15 seconds or Max is 15 seconds ahead or there was an accident or whatever I mean you would be (laughs) obviously pretty upset about that all right so well (laughs) you had you always give me a load of grief whenever I work in the uh, the the, the Valtteri Bottas stories, and it's become a bit of a running joke on the show just because, you know, he doesn't really deserve it. But you, I, I think you're trolling me now, by because you threw this Nikita Mazepin story into the. Uh, the I, I didn't even notice this in the in the show line until uh, into the outline until I opened my browser and uh, here it is. Anyways, I have lots of notes on this topic for those of you watching. Oh my live. gosh! Wow. Okay. Well, I, I'm not even going to wait 
leaned into this when you you've already uh, you know mentally gone through this one and put a lot of thought into it. So, anyways, Nikita Mazepin says that he believes that his dad, who is um, you know obviously uber rich and uh, runs the uh, Urukali company, which is the uh, the the main sponsor of Haas and uh, the reason why they are rocking the color uh, the colors of the Russian flag, which is also coincidentally the colors of Urukali. Anyways, Nikita says his dad could turn a Formula One team into gold. So I, I'm now I've got my thoughts on this, but you you've obviously prepared for this. So go for it, my friend. I kind of went down that research rabbit hole on this one, and I'm also going to paraphrase Mazapan's statement here as well as Mazapan, and I quote. Although I'm paraphrasing, although this is total fabrication. My daddy <laughs> is the most amazing and bestest businessman oligarch in the whole wide world. So to give a little bit of background on this one, because I, I think it's interesting and it helps kind of set the stage politically for some of what's happening in the F1 paddock today. Dmitry Mazapan, Nikita Mazapan's father, has between two and four children. It's not known how many, and it's never been formally declared. Wait, what? Can you say that again? One. He, he's he got has between, between two, and, two four. and four children. Okay. It's not officially known, and he's never acknowledged the total number of children that he has, which okay. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Forbes lists him among the top 100 wealthiest Russians. His current fortune is estimated to be about a billion dollars, down from a high of about $1.4 billion, dollars twenty. Around 2015. No, I hate it he when that happens. Born, yeah, yeah. Well, you just shed 500 million dollars in wealth in six years. It sucks, born in 68, he worked as an interpreter in Afghanistan in the 1980s. And of course, for any of you that know, um, the Afghanistan war between Afghanistan and Russia was very similar politically, socially to the conflict that the United States had in Vietnam all those years ago. He scored a PhD in 2020. 2012, defending a thesis on developing a method, method, method. I knew I was going to struggle with this word, methodical. Why can't I not say that word? Can you say it for me? Methodical? Methodical? Methodical. Okay, I was I was just guessing at that I had I no idea like, what you're trying to For some to reason I felt it. like Derek Zoolander there. Uh, <laughs> methodical approach to managing stark market or stark market potential of an oil company. In 2007, as you spoke to a couple of minutes ago, he took all of the kind of corporate financial assets that he had, he combined them into a single umbrella organization. Uh, at the time the Eurocam United Chemicals Company, he continued to build on his wealth by gobbling up fertilizer companies, petrol companies, um, oil and gas companies bringing all of those together he continued to expand on his academic base but continued to basically kind of reinforce his fortune now from a formula one perspective where he really entered the scene was 2018 and for those of you that don't know back in 2018 the force india team went into administration and there's a whole slew of reasons that happened that i won't get into now but it involves uh, deceit it involves financial manipulation it involves robbery and theft from indian banks but that aside force india goes into administration now when a company in the uk goes into administration typically the preference of the company that's put in charge of managing the administration is they want to keep the company whole to protect the jobs of the employees in that company. So typically there's an option A, which is, hey, we simply want to sell the shares of this company to somebody that's willing to keep it intact and keep it together. 
Alternatively, if we can't do that, if the company is in such a terrible shape, the administration, the company that's managing the administration of the company, they'll allow the sale of the assets. So that's basically when vultures come in and they pick the company apart. I'm yeah. going to take this facility. Yeah. I'm going to take these tools. I'm going to take your data center. They strip it apart. The employees are let go. It's over. So in 2018, Force India went into administration. And the way that happened is actually a really interesting story that we won't get into now. And there was a bidding process. Process. Unfortunately, for a number of reasons, option A, which is the sale of the shares, didn't actually happen. So it went to a bidding process, a secretive bidding process on the sale of the assets. What we know is that Lawrence Stroll was bidding on those assets. And what we also know is that Dimitri Mazapan was bidding on those assets. Now, it's believed because Dimitri ultimately took the company that was managing the administration to court in 2020. It's believed that Lawrence Stroll's bid may have actually been lower, but that the administrators favored it because in a unique unique commitment, he was willing to buy the assets, but keep the company whole and retain all the employees. It was understood that Dimitri had a bigger bid, but he wasn't willing to make a commitment to the headcount and the employees within the company. So he was very angry about this because he felt he had a bigger bid. So he actually sued the administrators. Now that case was thrown out mm -hmm. of court, but it obviously created this friction within the F1 community because you have, you have this you have this one potential owner that's now linked up with Haas who's suing the administrator because a current owner that he shares the paddock with ultimately got the team that he wanted to take on. So there's a whole bunch of complexity there. What they had said in that court case was the administrator had negligently misrepresented uh, that they would select the successful bidder base on the basis of the most favorable offer being financial and that they negligently misrepresented that the bidding process would be offered clearly and honestly and above board. Now, the irony there, of course, is that this is a Russian oligarch that is hugely controversial from a business perspective. So that kind of sets up the background, but this is a guy that very much wants to own a Formula One team, but I'm not clear that the Formula One community wants him to own a Formula One team, especially mm -hmm. when there's such a decisive, bitter relationship between him and Lawrence and the Liberty Group, because my sense is that if Liberty wanted him to be a part of the Formula One community, it would would have happened. And I just, I don't think that's the case, but I think it's interesting that Nikita Mazepan is commenting on his value as a potential Formula One owner. <laughs> I don't even know how to unpack this one, but yeah, no, it, it really is interesting too. Um, you know, that, that, that whole process when, uh, Lauren Stroll came in and, and managed to take over Force India and rebranded his racing point, which was obviously just an in-between placeholder name until the ultimate relaunch is uh, Aston Martin. And that that lawsuit that was thrown out quite some it time was, yeah, ago. Back I'm, I'm, end of 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it must've been some, some time ago because that, that already, when, when you mentioned it, it seemed like it was very, very old news, but you raise a really great point that the, the thing is that if he was was really being accepted into the you know the fraternity the brotherhood of uh, formula one or the community of formula one team owners you would think that uh, there would be less resistance um you know not that there's any overt resistance but it doesn't really seem he's being welcomed into the club or encouraged i guess is perhaps the maybe the more accurate way to describe it to, to uh, get his hands on a team 
Yeah, the only other thing, and I agree with everything you said, the only other thing I would add, and this is something that I've actually had questions about before, which is, hey, midway through 2018, the race, the Force India team goes into administration, and then after Lawrence Stroll takes over, they lost all their points in the Constructors' Championship. Why did that happen? Well, the reason it happened is because the Formula One team that was known as Force India ceased to exist. Mm-hmm. So during that administration process, Lawrence Stroll didn't buy the shares of the Force India team. He bought the assets. So in the process, Force India ceased to exist. He basically just resurrected a new Formula One team within the factory and within the logistical construct of the old Force India team. So because Force India no longer existed, they lost all the constructors points that they had earned to that point in the season. Now, the drivers, they consist, they may have technically driven for two different teams that year, but they got to keep their points. So I always thought that was an interesting story. And for those of you that are somewhat historians when it comes to Formula One, that's the reason why you saw 11 teams technically compete in that season (laughs) and why halfway through the season, the new racing point team started with zero points. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting, too, because they they really were on life support prior to that uh, takeover. Absolutely. And it was funny, too, how when Stroll came in and they just injected a little bit of cash, how immediately you noticed an improvement on, on the track. I mean, that team was literally holding on by the you know, by their fingernails, it was really, really touch and go. I mean, ultimately, it, it worked out. I mean, it's worked out, um, obviously, for the people that have, uh, you know, stuck around and been there uh, through that whole process. I mean, uh, with the rebrand to Aston Martin, the commitment that uh, Stroll has made and, you know, not just uh, as an owner, but also in terms of the facility and the new factory that they're building that they'll go into, um, you know, next year, or the year after when it's uh, whenever it's going to be. But uh, yeah, it's uh, certainly very interesting. I also think it's very interesting that when you quote uh, Nikita Mazepin, that it sounds like the same sort of way that you would read a story to your your young son. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, this is an interesting one here that McLaren is going to uh, assess Pato Award uh, in Formula One after uh, he has a, a test at Abu Dhabi in uh, December. So the, the Mexican driver has been a really uh, impressive driving an IndyCar this uh, season, and it was only narrowly beaten to the title by Alex Palou. So, you know, it, you know could we, we already have one Mexican driver in Formula One. Is there a, a possibility that a Ward uh, might get a drive in Formula One? Maybe not in the short term, but they obviously are really keen on, on him and see what uh, he can do in a Formula One car because they don't really give a lot of track time to people outside of the teams, uh, even even if it's for one of these tire tests or one of these uh, shakedowns or whatever it might be. So there, there's obviously something there. And I think the bigger story here is less about award getting a ride in a Formula One car through a testing session, but rather I think this is really not necessarily the culmination, but I think this is a byproduct of everything that Zach Brown is trying to build at McLaren, right? Which is, we've got this Formula One team, and there's some clear upward trajectory, and yep. in part because of an infusion of Bahraini money, um, and possibly some Saudi money, which is fine, but for a lot of reasons, they've really got that team on the right financial footing. Logistically, culturally, it seems to be in the great place. You've got some mm-hmm. great drivers, and and on the track, they're really starting to show, I would say, I would, they're starting to show 
all the hard work that's gone into that team over the last couple of years. But what they're doing on the other side of the Atlantic is they partnered originally with Arrow to start building a presence in India. Next year, they're going to be a much more independent operation. But I think the clear intent is that Indy could become a platform for developing future F1 drivers. And this could be the first potential example of this because they've packaged up and they've got this driver over with the Aero McLaren SP team. And now he's going to get a ride in a real life 2021 Formula One car. So maybe this is a snapshot or a vision of what we're going to see more of in the future. And maybe not just with this team. We know that we know that Ferrari took a look at getting involved in Indy a couple of years ago. We know that Red Bull's been sniffing around that circuit for many years. The teams are cheap to buy. The teams are cheap to operate. And it's a really great place to stash a driver. So you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that Mercedes is really struggling to find places to put its young drivers. Ferrari is struggling to find places to put its young drivers. Why not an ultra-competitive open-wheel championship like Indy? Forget Formula E because that is a very different sport than Formula 1 in Indy. Why not? invest in these teams they relative to formula one the cost of operating an an indycar team is dirt cheap you've got the resources you've got the people capital you've got the tooling it's a relatively low startup cost and even if you do it less for the benefit of winning a title on the other side of the atlantic in north america just do it because it's somewhere to stash your young drivers when they age out of formula two yeah, that that is a really a fascinating, uh, you know, and good point that you make there, Mark. And it's, uh, you know, just going back to like Ferrari and uh, Mercedes. I mean, it it seems so amazing to me that uh, that that even teams like that are struggling to find places uh, to, to to put their talent and and Indy seems like a, a really really good uh, place to be I mean it seems that the that the sport the series is having a bit of a, a renaissance I mean th- that split that they had uh, between IndyCar and IRL back in the 90s I mean I understand why it happened but I, I think unfortunately it really set back open wheel uh, racing in in America at that level you know th- th- that's schism i think did uh, you know more harm than good and it's taken a long time for it to uh, to rebound and it was on such a high oh when yeah that divorce yeah. happened you'd had nigel mansell transition across the atlantic yeah. he wins a championship jacques villeneuve's on top of the world he's migrating to formula one and then they just they compromised all of that by splitting in two and they forced fans to take sides are you going to go with cart champ car or are you going to go with the oval-based IRL with the highly, highly, highly constricted spec cars. It was it was terrible. And you're right, it's really taken a quarter of a century to undo the damage that was that was the outcome of that divorce. Well, I mean, in the 80s and even until the, the, the 90s, the mid-90s, whenever that split was, I mean, it, you know, IndyCar was a, a much bigger thing. I mean, it, it's starting to get to more attention now, I think. But I mean, in recent years, it was almost kind of like a, a bit of a footnote on a, on a sporting weekend, right? You know, it'd just be like, you got this going on, you got that going on. Oh, yeah. And then there was also an IndyCar race. But I mean, apart from Indy, Indy's always been big. It's always been one of those mark your calendar events, even in the, you know, that that uh, you know that period between the splits, even though it divided talent uh, at certain points in, in time, I, I really feel that it's like you say. I mean that uh, the damage has taken you know twenty five years to to be uh, repaired, but I, I'm hopeful that. Uh, that uh, that that it's going in the right uh, direction, and that would be a really good. Uh, 
thing, a really good investment is, I shouldn't say thing, a really good investment for a Formula One team. And, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, people capital and also uh, drivers and whatnot, I mean, why not uh, field a team in IndyCar and be competitive there, there as well? Because, I mean, if you have a competitive uh, team there and you're trying to nurture talent, you're looking for a place to to, to keep your drivers, I mean, you would think that uh, it would be more beneficial if it's a competitive team rather than just showing up and being another another team on the grid, right? I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, although we've certainly commented on it on Twitter, but Christopher Silt reported, and he works for Forbes covering Formula yep. One and the theme park industry. He he'd uh, reported in 2019 that Liberty was sniffing around a purchase of IndyCar and that the purchase price was speculated to be about 225 to 250 million dollars pre-pandemic and i think liberty thought that was a little bit high but if liberty's chief ambition Mm -hmm. is to grow the revenues associated with this formula one product you know what buying indy could be a really great move and and i know that there's a lot of diehard IndyCar fans out there that aren't necessarily formula one fans and they want no part of this but there could be some really great symmetries if both IndyCar and Formula One were housed under the same banner. Yeah, or at least uh, align each other, you know, even in some sort of like working relationship. I see at this point in time, I see like a, a lot more benefits um, for, for, for both of them. I see it as like a two-way relationship rather than a, than, than a one-way relationship, right? Okay, moving along. And this one is uh, interesting. So, and uh, I, I wish I could, uh, you know, show the, the picture I have my monitor to everybody that's listening to the podcast uh, because uh, you know th- this has to do with the new track that's being built in Jeddah and Saudi Arabia and the new race that is uh, you know literally just uh, weeks away and uh, the the title says and I love how it's all in the inverted commas it says Saudi Arabia's F1 circuit is nearing the finish line on completion and it doesn't look very near to completion and this comes to somebody that works in the construction and land development <laughs> industry and I'm just like thinking based on some of the pictures that I've been looking at that some of the paint is going to be wet when they show up uh, to this race uh, (laughs) you know in several weeks from now but uh yeah wow Uh, there's a lot of work to do it certainly wouldn't be the first time that we've gotten to a formula one track days before the event and the paint is drying i remember i remember the first time we went to india the paint on the track was still being put down on the day of the first practice (laughs) session and i remember reading a quote once from charlie whiting the former race director um rest in peace um pour one out for charlie because he was well loved in the paddock and amongst the formula one community but i remember reading a quote once where he had traveled to Korea weeks, days before the first Korean Grand Prix, and he was walking the track, and at one point the track just ended, and there was a forest <laughs> covering a hill, and there was supposed to be a racetrack that was going to cut through this hill that wasn't supposed to be there, and they still had time to bulldoze this hill, cut down the forest, and lay the rest of the track, so oh I think God. if you look at the photos, and I shared a photo of uh, the Jeddah uh, track a couple of days ago, they're confident that it's going to be done. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be to the standards of beautification that they would hope because i think the renderings that 
have been shown show a beautiful lush tropical scene the track weaves along the city's cornice along the waterfront it circles a beautiful lagoon i don't know if all of this is going to be done we know the track is down it was poured at the beginning of september but there's still some extremely heavy lifting from a a a logistical infrastructure perspective, the grandstand, the garages, the media centers, there is a lot of work. And like you said, there's only weeks left. Now, the track itself is something that I'm also excited about. It's going to be the second longest track on the calendar, 6.2 kilometers, 27 corners. It's going to be incredibly fast. They speculate that the average speed could be as much as 250 kilometers an hour. And I think that translates to... Actually, can you do the American translation for me? Dude, it's almost 11 p.m. and it's been a busy day. I, my, Divide my, that my by 1.6. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to have three DRS zones. It's going to be a brand new surface. So we know it's going to be very, very slippery. Qualifying should be a blast. I don't know what the racing is going to look like. But again, I'm excited to see what the final product looks like. But the, the race organizers are very, very confident that they're going to be ready to go. But like you said, it's really just weeks away at this point. You know, I think I'm expecting very much that when we get to Jeddah several weeks from now, now that uh, the lush desert oasis that's going to be like in the infield of the track is going to be uh, replaced by construction equipment, piles of debris covered by tarps and uh, and all that sort of stuff and the occasional like container and whatnot. And then magically we'll come back next year and it's all properly landscaped and beautiful, much like the landscaping drawings and things like that. Exactly. But, uh, 155 bit... miles an hour. There that is go. the conversion. There we go. There you go. We're making an effort. <laughs> we definitely are. Considering we had like a you know a really prolonged discussion on the uh, the, the pros and cons of the oh, metric boy, system. Boy, did we hear v, about that in the comments? The appearance, uh, yeah, 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 never read the comments. Okay, so all the teams are going to run rookie drivers twice in 2022 and uh, this uh, all the teams are going to be uh, basically forced to do so to run a rookie driver on two Friday practice sessions in 2022 and this is following a change in the sporting regulations okay that's great it gives them some uh, real track time in a real Formula One car but uh, again that kind of goes back to the discussion we were just uh, having if there isn't any hope for them to have a full-time seat in Formula One and let's be honest a sim driver or reserve driver is you know, it's it's not great. It's not what what you're there for, and um, sure, it's a little bit of experience, but it's not much more than that. I completely agree. I don't think I'm going to get super excited about this. They also haven't clarified in the regulations whether it's two different drivers or it's going to be the same driver. And to be totally honest, like if you look at a race calendar, most teams are already doing this already. Maybe we don't see it with Ferrari. Maybe we don't see it with Mercedes, but absolutely amongst those smaller teams, they're already doing this because they need to get reps for some of their younger drivers who might have a future opportunity with that team. So it's good. I don't think it's groundbreaking. No. Hey, let, let's take one final break here, Mark. When we come back, we want to talk about the uh, the, the pit stop rule changes. So let, let's just take one final break here and then we come, come back and uh, talk about this in the attention and the detail it deserves. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. 
Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. One final segment on the show this week, and this is one that's had a lot of discussion in the the Formula One community over the past uh, couple of races. And this is what with the, the the technical directive and all the changes that have gone uh, or been implemented uh, in the past uh, several weeks uh, after the uh, you know the TD was uh, introduced and unveiled for the Belgian Grand Prix to slow down the pit stops on uh, you know on safety grounds. But I mean, it is. Um, it's 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 a bit con- confusing when you look at it, they have to they've imposed a minimum 0.15 seconds between the wheel nuts being tightened and the uh, jack operator lowering the car and then another minimum 0.2 of a second between the car being lowered and the driver receiving the green light to, to go I mean these are all very small fractions of uh, seconds but when there were a bunch of I guess automated uh, processes that were happening during the pit stops which would bring it under the uh, you know the, that you know that magical two second mark which I think is just an incredible feat of uh, regardless if it's a combination of technology and and pit crew it is just uh, an amazing thing but it really is very very small margins and 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 small you know, periods of time, but it, it does have an impact. And we've seen that uh, many, many teams have struggled as a result of this. Yeah, I would say that the overwhelming sentiment amongst the F1 community is, yes, safety is important because yep. ultimately that was the impetus for this technical directive that was announced in June, that safety is important, but what is the issue? And ultimately, the FIA, their argument was the pit stops are too quick, the wheels aren't being securely fastened to the cars, and that poses a safety risk. Now, have we seen issues where wheels aren't safely secured to a car? Yeah, we saw it in Australia with both Haas cars a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago, but we haven't seen any very significant flagrant issues. So this whole technical directive is less about competitive balance as it is sport is as it is safety but the challenge is i don't perceive that this was a safety issue and i don't think many within the paddock perceived that there was a safety issue but what we're starting to see is that it is having a significant impact on the outcome of some of these races and my fear is we could ultimately see an event where maybe a race is decided between two championship contenders by a couple of seconds because one of the drivers got stuck in the box for four seconds because they were struggling with this this whole threshold of making sure that they're not under the 0.15 second allowance for any specific function of a wheel change. So to me, this seems unnecessarily convoluted and complex. And both you and I had predicted that we are going to see instances where a driver's race could potentially be impacted before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And now we've seen it multiple times. And again, I'm all for safety. We need to do things that are right for the safety of the marshals, for the drivers, for those in attendance. I just don't perceive that this was a significant safety issue. And then to introduce it mid-season as well, when mechanics have yeah. to make those adjustments seemed crazy. Yeah, you know, that that that's that's so true, right? I mean, if the, it was introduced for the start of 2022, then they have a couple of months uh, to be able to, 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 to practice this, to get used to it, rather than learning it 
on the fly when over the, the, the past number of years, it's been, you know, get faster and the, the pit stops have been going quicker and quicker. Now they have these artificial means imposed upon them to, to, to slow them down. And like I say, yeah, I mean, it is a perception thing because it's not like the, the introduction of the Halo mandatory safety upgrade, which is undoubtedly saved lives in Formula One multiple times since it was introduced on the car a couple of years ago. It's not like another obvious uh, safety issue like unrestricted uh, speed limits in the the pit lane, for example, or risky blocking maneuvers under braking or any other carbon fiber, monocoque shafts. All these other things are, are obvious um safety improvements and and this one it kind of has the feel of you know no fun racing (laughs) to kind of use like a a bad kind of like a you know analogy like these rules were designed by a guy that hates birthday parties and puppies and told his eight-year-old daughter she couldn't have a kitten and the guy that took down the christmas tree on christmas eve and packed away all the gifts and is wearing a i love haters t-shirt you know it's just uh you know that's just me being weird but uh, you know, I I just don't like it, and I I guess you know an obvious um, one when it comes to safety in the pit lane was the banning of refueling in 2010. You know, because we'd seen fuel spilled onto exhaust manifolds and that fuel ignite, and we've seen drivers drive down the pit lane with the fuel rig still attached to the car. I mean, that uh, I, I was never a fan of refueling, so I was glad when it was um, when it was uh, you know banned from the sport and it wasn't a thing anymore. And I actually really thought that it added a competitive element to Formula One with these uber fast uh, pit stops and uh, Red Bull setting that record time uh, what was it a couple of years ago was it like 1.89 seconds I mean I I can't even lift my wrist to check the time on my watch in 1.89 seconds but to change four tires on a Formula One car and get that car moving again I mean from from stop to start again I mean it it is um absolutely and an amazing feat but i mean even a a pit stop of two and a half or three seconds but it just seems now it's more chaotic it seems so disjointed and discombobulated and i'm i'm really not a fan of it i completely completely agree i like that word discombobulated by the way and it's (laughs) funny because i was actually a huge fan of refueling but when the fia decided that enough's enough there's too many incidents because to your point drivers were being released from the box or they were leaving the box while the fuel hose was still attached to the car. Even I recognize that this has no place in Formula One. If we don't need to refuel a car, why are we doing it? The safety risks are too high. I love the drama. It's super cool to watch. It has no place in modern Formula One. And it definitely doesn't have a place in modern Formula One now with so much of the electrification. But this isn't really the only place where there are these borderline artificial limits. One of the things I recall happening a couple times over the course of the last few years is there are thresholds in tolerances on how fast a driver is allowed to react to a green light at the start of the race, right? And I I can't remember the specific threshold. I think it's about 100 milliseconds. But if a driver reacts to a green light at a start, under a certain threshold, they will get a penalty for jumping the light, even if they don't react until the light is green, Mm -hmm. because it means that they're anticipating because the FIA believes that a human can't respond to a green light within a certain threshold. So even if the light is green and you react after the light turns, you could get a penalty. So it's some of these things that kind of take the fun out of the sport. And to your point, it's almost like governing Major League Baseball in a way that, hey, you as a pitcher, you could throw those fastballs, but if you accept 
exceed 100 miles an hour, there's going to be a penalty because that's not safe. You know what? If these guys are skilled and trained and capable of executing a sub two second pit stop, let them do it. Don't try to artificially limit it and potentially compromise a driver's race over the perception of providing more security when that's not necessary or safety when that's not necessarily proven to be an outstanding problem in the sport. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, I, I really am not a fan. So unfortunately, I think it's one of these things that are here to stay. And I, I guess there's always uh, room for improvement when it comes to safety. It just, it didn't seem like this was one that really needed to, to be a, um, you know, it, it didn't really need to, to be addressed in such a way. I want to end, and I know we need to wrap it up, and I know you're going to start turning off the lights on me in a couple <laughs> seconds. Well, well, I scramble to get my jacket and my mic wallet and, just, yeah. and my car keys to get out of the studio before I get locked in here for the night. But uh, we put a post on for a week. Uh, <laughs> we put a post up a couple of weeks ago, and it was, I'd love to know some things you weren't expecting coming to this season, and we'll read them on an upcoming pod. So I had listed a couple of things. One, I didn't expect that gulp. I was going to start liking Nico Rosberg, and I didn't expect that the World Drivers Championship would be this close, but I wouldn't be enjoying it. So got a couple of good responses that I'd love to run through here real quick. Meg, I didn't expect it to be Sochi and Lewis Hamilton still wouldn't have his 100th race win, although he managed to secure that in Russia. Steve Williams at Steve Fred Will definitely wouldn't have expected this quality result. That was, of course, the Russia result. Didn't expect Hamilton to feel the pressure, make so many minor, not so minor errors and I didn't expect the championship overall as good as it is at Kirk Brew. I didn't expect to be a big F1 fan, but three seasons of DTS and the start of a new season. And here I am watching every practice, qualifying and race. Um, at Mike BOV 1982, Ferrari having this much pace. They were hot garbage last year. Um, our friend Chimko Peremez, you'll explain why you like Nico now. I'll do that on an upcoming podcast. Ryan Brown, didn't expect but happy to see Lando, third best driver on the grid. Gasly Locate killing it too. Juan Solo, I honestly didn't think we'd get a grid with Norris and Russell both in the top three this season. More amazing to me after this race, if both Hamilton and Verstappen don't collect any points, it's entirely possible that Norris and Bottas are both contenders for the driver's title. And again, that tweet was before Sochi. Dave, I agree on the championship being close. We even, quote unquote, they verbed this. We even Gretzkyed Hamilton out of our F1 pool. So I guess that was a thing in the 80s or the 90s when you weren't allowed to draft Hamilton or Gretzky. Um, And I think... Jason Stroud didn't expect Chico to be this average and arguably the top car. Didn't expect Bottas to sign with Alfa Romeo. Didn't expect so much marshalling with race innocence. Didn't expect such a rise from Williams. Strong midfield contender for next season. And then finally, from Michael Stewart, I never expected to spend two hours listening to an F1 podcast from a couple Canadians on a regular basis and enjoying every minute of it. So for me, that's where I'm going to tap out on this epic podcast, but just wanted to kind of leave on a high note tonight. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Burns. And thank you, Mr. Hamilton. You know, I just want to add my own um, uh, two cents uh, to that one is, uh, I guess, uh, much like everybody else, I did not expect the uh, the championship to be so close as it is two thirds of the way through the season. I thought that maybe after half a dozen ra- uh, races into the year, <laughs> that either Lewis or Max would start uh, opening up, uh, you know, a big lead in the championship. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of drama between the, the first uh, race in 
Bahrain to where we are now, just on the uh, ahead of the Turkish Grand Prix. There, there's obviously been a lot uh, that's happened in between um, that's kept it as close as it has been. The other thing that uh, that I'm surprised nobody mentioned is the fact that uh, not only do McLaren uh, be uh, have become regular podium contenders over the last couple of te- races, they apparently also seem to be potential race winners. So we'll see in Turkey whether or not uh, the last two races in Sochi and at Monza were uh, a couple of outliers, but um, certainly that was a, a story that's uh, really popped up. But some some great points that uh, that people have raised in uh, in those uh, those uh, tweets there. Really, really cool to see. And I mean, I, I think that we will look back at the end of this uh, season and, uh, well, you know, famous last words now, and uh, we'll probably give it the kiss of death that, oh, it's been so good so far. And then the last half dozen races, you know, turn out to be a uh, complete garbage, but I don't think so. I mean, it's it's been pretty good. It's been pretty good uh, and tight racing most of the year. And I hope that it keeps up uh, for the last uh, half dozen racers or so to, uh, to, to wrap it up. But uh, yeah, I think it'll be one that we look back with some fondness uh, you know, in years to come, and uh, I think that uh, it might be a good way to usher out this era of uh, Formula One, especially as we are on uh, the dawn of a new era, and as we all look forward to the new cars that will debut next year. So anyways, I think that's uh, about uh, everything that we have uh, for tonight. Uh, On behalf of myself and my friend and co-host, Mr. Mark Hamilton, thank you for downloading and listening to the show. Thank you for all of you that uh, joined us on the live stream on YouTube uh, tonight. If you want to get in touch, best way to do so is on Twitter at ScuderiaF1. If you want to send us an email, promise next show we will read out some emails. We've got some really good ones I want to get to. Email us at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Obviously, no race to recap this weekend. So enjoy the weekend wherever you are. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now. <laughs>